Well, welcome again to this worship gathering of Redeemer Church of Dubai. My name is Dave Furman. I serve as one of the elders here at the church, and it's always wonderful to gather. It's great to be back at Jumeirah Creekside this uh, Friday. If you're new to us, welcome. You'll find a, a, a visitor card in your bulletin. We'd love for you to fill that out. You can drop that in the offering baskets towards the end of the service or take that to our connections table up front. We'd love to be in contact with you. You definitely want to get on, on our email list so we can let you know about where we'll be meeting. Uh, if you're new to us, we're glad that you're here. We want to make sure that you know that the church is not a place, but the church is a people. And we're a people who are walking by faith each week. Just like the Israelites there in the wilderness, they were following God's lead. They didn't know where they were going to be the next week or even the next day, but they trusted God's gracious provision. And so it won't be a surprise to those of you who've been with us for a while that we don't know our long-term solution just yet, but we are trusting God for that. Last week, we had a wonderful time in Iraq. I know many of you were there for Redeemer's first road trip. It was a delight to, to be together in one gathering, to sing and to pray, to share some prayer requests and up, some updates, and then to eat dinner uh, together. So Rack was, was wonderful. The room was full, had great family time. Well, our schedule for the next four weeks, let me go over that with you. It's a bit different. You'll see on the screens in front of you for the next four weeks. So Next week, the 25th, you want to make a special note. Last week in Rack, we met at 5 p.m. This next week, we'll be at the Dubai Evangelical Church Center in Jebel Ali, also at 5 p.m. So last week, 5 p.m. in Rack. Next week, 5 p.m. in Jebel Ali at the church compound there. And then for the next three weeks after that, we'll be back in what's become at least our short-term solution here at Jumeirah Creekside, November 1st, November 8th, and November 15th. So make note of that. So just some yes or no questions, just to make sure we're, we're, we're here. Uh, will, we, will we be in this room next week? No, that wasn't too emphatic. Okay, let me try another question. Will, will, will we be in the Dubai Evangelical Church Center next week? Okay, that's wonderful. So I expect to see every single one of you there next week, especially if you said uh, yes. We have buses available if transportation's an issue. Again, from Sharjah City Center and from Reef Mall Indira. You can sign up for those online. Again, one service, 5 p.m. We'll have children's ministry uh, from, for kids three to five years of age. We'll have a parent's room for any kids zero to two. You could go in there uh, with your kids. Hopefully that'll be of help to you. And then we'll have some snacks and some food afterwards. I'll be continuing our series in uh, 1 Samuel. So we'll be looking at chapter 5, verse 1 through chapter 7, verse 2. So it's a big chunk. So don't miss that. We'll also be taking communion uh, together. And do pray. We're, we got the schedule lined up till November uh, 15th, but we are praying with the permissions that we need from the government. They normally uh, need to come in a month in advance. And so pray that even this week, the Lord would give uh, us direction and make the way clear so we can apply for those permissions. Just a few brief announcements. Uh, just a reminder for community group leaders, we'll meet today at 5.45 p.m. up on the mezzanine level, two floors up, those elevators. Also, I uh, want to let you know that FOCUS, our u the university student ministry here in the country that's serving various campuses. If you're a uni student, there's a conference next uh, Friday and Saturday. You can find uh, a link to sign up in the back of your bulletin. And also, do you want, just want to encourage you to take some time, uh, whether it's now or even just later on, to look through 
uh, the, the bulletin. Uh, on, the, on page three, you'll see an order of service. Aaron Samara on our staff team has worked hard to make this bulletin very user-friendly for you. And so you'll see on the order of service page three, it'll tell you the page numbers of what we're singing and what we're doing in, in the service. You'll also find in the bulletin the Bible passages we're reading, of course, the song lyrics, other readings that come up, note-taking pages. You'll find the benediction in there, uh, prayer requests for a least reached people group. And I love this on page 14. I think this is a wonderful addition. There's a glossary of words there. There you can read definitions for difficult words and concepts that you may not know from the songs we sing and from the sermon text itself. And so that'll be there uh, for you. And finally, on the back of the bulletin, you'll find a nice nifty uh, upcoming events calendar for things happening in the life of our church. So we hope the bulletin serves you now in worship and throughout the week. Also, we'll take up our offering after the sermon, but before we jump into the text, let's go to the Lord in prayer for a few needs in the life of our body. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, you are holy, holy, holy. You alone are worthy of our praise. We come before you as those unworthy of your presence, and yet through Christ's death, you've made a way. And so we ask for your grace for our meeting location. Thanks for Jumeirah Creekside. Thanks for Fellowship Church that meets here in the morning. Thank you for their generosity and kindness towards us and letting us use their things here. We praise you for them. We thank you for Rack Evangelical Church. We thank you for the Dubai Evangelical Church Center and the churches that meet there. But Father, we also pray for a more permanent solution. Father, would you please guide us to the place you'd have us? Would it be a place we can faithfully proclaim the gospel? And would we see people come to faith in Jesus there? Would we see the Christians built up? Would we see our church built up in faith? Father, we do pray for Emmanuel Church of Frugera this afternoon. Thank you for the progress made for a new building there. Thank you for good news from Pastor Steve on his visit this week. And we pray that by the end of 2020, that there would be a building there dedicated to your gospel being preached on the Indian Ocean coast. Oh, would you bring it to fruition for your glory? We thank you for His Highness, Hamid bin Mohammed al-Sharki, the ruler of Frugera. Father, we praise you for his generosity and we ask that you would continue to build the partnership between Christians and the ruler's court in Frugera. Father, we also pray for those hurting in our midst. Bless Peter Christopher and his family as they mourn the death of his father this week. Give them peace in the midst of the storm. Father, allow them to minister to their family back in India, especially Peter's mom who's grieving. Father, we pray for others who are sick or in pain today, for those struggling with depression and doubt, for members of our church anxious and worrying even this very minute. Oh, would your truth bring them hope? And as we come to your word now, would it bring comfort to our weary souls? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we turn to our text in 1 Samuel this evening, I just have a few questions for you. Are you spiritually superstitious? Do you have any good luck charms? In the UK, it's tradition at times to hide a silver coin in the Christmas pudding. Whoever finds it will have good luck for that year. 
In Guatemala, worry dolls are given to children. They tell the dolls all their worries and they hide it under their pillows. And overnight, the doll takes all the kids' worries away like magic. In the Middle East, pigs bring bad luck. In Germany, a glass or porcelain pig in the house can bring good luck. Elephants bring good luck in parts of India. In Italy, it's dolphins. In Native America, turtles. In Sweden, the dala horse. In Ireland, it's all about shamrocks. Athletes around the world also have their own rituals and superstitions. One basketball player clips his fingernails at the timeouts, the breaks in the game. Another player wears the opposing team's shorts to sleep the night before. It's a bit odd, isn't it? That same player will actually wear five pairs of socks, one after another after another to play in. And that same player, again, eats chicken before every single game. One hockey player dunks his stick into the toilet before games. That's pretty gross and bad for a germaphobe like me. A football coach eats grass from the playing field before his team plays the match. A baseball player wears the same hat all season long, just month after month after month, and enjoys seeing the hat get dirtier and dirtier. Another player would eat licorice during the game and during break times would brush their teeth. Tennis star Serena Williams wears the same socks throughout an entire tournament, which I suppose is better than an entire season. It's not only athletes who are superstitious, though. Many others share these concerns. Uh, there's even a growing superstition about aliens. For $156 a year, a London company will insure you in the event you get abducted by aliens. Over 30,000 policies have already been sold, which is kind of ridiculous, especially since to get your money, you have to prove you've been abducted by aliens which would seem to be pretty hard to do. Other superstitions you may have heard about, knocking on wood, crossing your fingers, don't walk under a ladder, avoid black cats, be careful on Friday the 13th, don't open an umbrella inside the house or spill salt. In some cultures, the rabbit foot is believed to bring good luck. Some say it has to be the left hind foot. Others claim the rabbit must be captured in a cemetery, and best if it's captured while it's on a grave. And the meaner the person, the luckier the foot. Others say it must be on a Friday, or a rainy Friday, or Friday the 13th. The rabbit foot is dried out, it's preserved, put on keychains, carried around by gamblers, sold in vending machines, and even on Amazon.com for $14.99 plus shipping. But as one wise man has said, depend on the rabbit's foot, if you will. But remember, it didn't work very well for the rabbit. (laughs) It's true, isn't it? Well, this evening, we're going to look at what's often been called rabbit foot theology. Israel's going to be in trouble. And what do they do? Well, they go grab the rabbit's foot. Spiritual superstition. Well, if you have a Bible, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 4. It's a few books into the Old Testament. It's the book we've been looking at for the past couple of months. And we'll be looking at the whole chapter today. Verse 1, chapter 4, on to the end. If you have a Bible, you flip there. But if not, you'll find the text on page 5 
in your bulletin. It'll begin there on page five and on page six, and you can follow the written text there. Well, here's the main point right up front. Put away your religious superstitions and trust God. Put away your religious superstitions. Put away your rabbit's foot and trust God. And we'll see that truth in three sections this evening. Number one, we'll see a bad day, verses one through four. Actually, let me back up. Number one is a bad idea, verses one through four. Number two is a bad day, verses five through 11. And then number three is bad news, verses 12 through 22. So number one, bad day. Number two, bad idea. I'm messing that all up again. Okay, I'm dyslexic today. Bad, number one, bad idea. Number two, bad day. And number three, bad news. Let's go in that order. First, a bad idea. Verse one. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Well, at this point, all Israel was aware that Samuel was a prophet of the Lord. Eli and his sons were still the chief priests. But throughout this chapter, what do you notice? Well, you may remember the Where's Wally books from when you were a child. Or maybe Where's Waldo, depending on where you come from. There aren't any words on these books, but the aim of these books was to look at a page with hundreds of cartoon characters, and you would scan the page over and over again trying to find Wally, that man dressed in that red and white striped suit. He's always there. It might take you a while to find him, but he's always there on the pages. But no matter how much you scan these upcoming three chapters, chapter four, chapter five, and chapter six, no matter how much you scan those pages, there's someone you're not going to find. There's someone missing. No matter how hard you look, you won't find Samuel. He's not there. Seems like a defect in the book. Samuel's called. Samuel's ordained. God is speaking in and through Samuel but where is he? Is he despised? Is he not listened to? Is he not consulted? We don't know. But the fact that Samuel and God's word is missing is telling. We'll come back to that as we go. Look at the rest of verse 1. Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. Philistines were a coastal community, a sea peoples. Aphek was a city of great military and commercial importance to them. The Philistines were always a nemesis to Israel. They're mentioned 286 times in the Old Testament. 152 of those times is right here in 1 Samuel. So they're going to be a main character throughout this whole book. They're an enemy that Israel had to deal with. Now, remember, the Israelites were supposed to deliver their people upon entering into the promised land. They were supposed to conquer their peoples, but they don't finish the task. They're not faithful to what God has commanded. And so the Philistines remain in the land. They are a thorn in Israel's flesh. They're going to continue to be a thorn in the flesh. So this initiative was late, but it's not wrong. It was right, better late than never. And the Philistines are encroaching in on Israel there. They're encroaching in on the religious center of Shiloh. Aphek is a mere 30 kilometers away. The Israelites are camped out in Ebenezer, about three kilometers east of Aphek on the road to Shiloh. Verse two, the Philistines drew up in line against Israel. They prepare for battle. And Israel was soundly defeated. 
4,000 dead. Verse 3, the troops come back to camp. They share the result with the elders. Now, the elders of Israel were a group of senior tribal leaders. They were entrusted with important decisions. It was a terrible loss. And they ask, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Well, that's an interesting insight. They seem to understand that somehow God is behind the defeat. At one level, they're right. God provoked this crisis, handed them over to their enemies, but they're wrong in their response. They don't really press in to the question they ask. Why? Why did God do this? Well, they ask it briefly, but then they move on with their own solution. There's no consultation with God, no talking to Samuel. They should have been going to Samuel. The word of God was coming in and through Samuel. None of God's words were falling to the ground as as he spoke them to Samuel, but they didn't consult him. There's no reflection. There's no repentance. So there's no relief. They understood it wasn't the Philistine military tactics that defeated them, but they never sought God to reveal to them the reason for their defeat. You know, later on, you can flip back a couple books to Joshua. And in Joshua chapter 7, Joshua's pleading with the Lord to find out why the Israelites were defeated in the promised land. And God tells them it's because of Achan's sin. But here, instead of reflecting and repenting, what did they do? Well, they try to harness God's power by using religious tools, spiritual superstition. They come up with a really terrible, totally horrible, nonsensical, tragically bad idea. The elders say, guys, we forgot about the ark. I can't believe we forgot about the ark. Let's grab the ark. Let's take the ark of the covenant into the battle. And if we do that, surely God will give us victory. If we take the ark into the battle, God has to give us a victory. Well, the ark of the covenant was normally kept in the tabernacle. But they probably remembered a couple of occasions in the past when Israel crossed into the promised land for the first time. They were carrying the ark when the Jordan River was dried up. They were also carrying the ark around all seven times around the walls of Jericho when the walls came crumbling down. They think, let's grab the ark. God's going to do something. Well, the ark of the covenant was a visible symbol of God's presence. It wasn't very big. It was a little more than a meter long, almost a meter high and a meter deep. In it was the manna from the wilderness, Moses's rod. And in it, you had a copy of the the tablets of the Ten Commandments. On top, there was a carved cherubim over it with their heads bowed. The cherubim appear in the iconography of ancient Near East. You see it often. They're hybrid figures, crosses between an animal and a human, often pictured at palace entrances. The position of them over the ark seems to point to the mercy of God. Now, the ark itself was kept in the Holy of Holies. And so the tabernacle was the traveling worship sanctuary. And in the tabernacle, you had the holy place. The holy place is where the priest would go in every day. But inside the holy place, in the inner sanctum, was the holy of holies. And in the holy of holies, only the high priest would go inside. And only on one day of the year, the day of atonement. 
This is the place where God dwelled. That's where the Ark of the Covenant dwelled. Now, of course, God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. But there was a special sense that God was present at the ark. There was a, a mercy seat there on top of the ark. And this is where the blood of the sacrificial lamb was placed on that day of atonement. It was a visual display that the people were saved by shed blood. That there was a sacrifice. It reminds us today of Christ and his sacrifice. Christ is the ultimate mercy seat. It's there on the cross where God reconciles us to himself. Well, the ark was the centerpiece of God's presence with them. So what was wrong with the elders grabbing the ark and taking it into battle? Well, it's because they went for the object of power instead of to their God. Israel treats God like a machine, like a cosmic vending machine. They think if we bring the ark into battle, surely Yahweh will be forced to deliver us because he'll be forced to protect his honor. Should something happen to the ark, it would make Yahweh look like a loser. And so there's no way he would do that. So let's bring the ark into the battle and that will ensure victory. He'll have to save us. He'll have to protect his glory. They're trying to twist God's arm. They're trying to put pressure on God using his furniture to harness his power. They're doing what they can to get God on their side. But that's not the important thing, is it? It's not about getting God on our side. It's about us being on God's side. They have it backwards. Israel was not trying to seek God, but to control him by looking to the ark of God and not to the God of the ark for hope. Well, they need to put away their religious superstitions and trust God. Well, what happens next? Well, we see the bad idea leads to a bad day. That's point number two, a bad day in verses five through 11. Verse five they get the ark, they prepare for battle, and they make lots of noise. They shout, they chant, they cheer. Let's go, let's go. We've got the, the good luck charm. We've, we've got it. Let's run into the, to the battle. Let's conquer the world. It's the Rugby World Cup, and you have the crowd cheering behind you. They're pretty excited about their golden box. The tears, the cheers, the flags waved. It looks like a revival. It's so loud, the Philistines hear it. It scares them. They think they're going to die, verses 6 and 7. There's a God in the camp, they say. And they call the Israelites the Hebrews. This was a pejorative way of talking about their rivals. Remember, these two groups aren't friends. And in verse 8, the Philistines, they cry out, Woe to us! Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Now the word gods is now in the plural, Elohim. A couple verses earlier, we read from the viewpoint of the narrator, but here we see the Philistines' polytheistic viewpoint on full display. They believed in a whole pantheon of gods. These are the gods who saved Israel from the Egyptians. Of course, we know more accurately that the plagues didn't happen in Egypt, but, uh, or happened in Egypt, but not in the wilderness as the Philistines are claiming here. The Philistines' details are a bit off, 
The point is they heard about Israel's God or gods. They've heard about what they've done, what he's done to take out the Egyptians and they're wondering, they're in fear. Are we next? Are we next to fall under the Hebrews' God? Well, verse 9, the Philistines take courage and in verse 10, there's going to be a rematch. Israel versus the Philistines, part 2. For Israel, it was worse than the first. It would be like a 60-nil defeat in the Rugby World Cup semifinals tomorrow. No match. The Philistines fought courageously, and Israel loses 30,000 soldiers in battle. I can't even comprehend that number. Each man who survived fled to his own house. This wasn't a break from military service. This was an abandonment from the military. But it gets worse. Unexpectedly, verse 11. Eli's two sons die and the Ark of the Covenant is captured. The deaths were terrible, but losing the Ark was unthinkable. Shiloh is probably destroyed because we never hear anything about it afterwards. Eli's descendants are seen in the city of Nob from this point forward. I mean, this was a bad day. This was a devastating day. The Israelites tried using God and faced the consequences. They failed to understand the ark was not a good luck charm that ensured victory. It wasn't a rabbit's foot. If God willed defeat, a thousand arks wouldn't have made a difference. God would rather suffer shame than allow us to carry on a false relationship with him. He won't be used like a rabbit's foot. He'll allow disappointment in our lives if it will wake us up to the truth. Friends, are there ways you're trying to coerce God into a personal good luck charm? What are some ways we can do this? Well, perhaps you carry a cross. Maybe you wear one around your neck. You have them hung in your house. Maybe you have one in your car. Well, that's not necessarily bad to do. Maybe it's a good reminder for you. Maybe it's a good reminder or beginning of a witness to someone else. But do you think that somehow that physical icon will gain you favor with God or promise you protection? For some of us, our rabbit foot could be being a part of or attending certain religious services, certain religious gatherings. My first pastor, Tommy, would always wrap up the Christmas service by saying, good night, I'll see you at Easter. And he did that because he knows that some of the people there at the Christmas service won't be back until Easter. Pastor Tommy also talked about one dad who was talking to his kid and said, I'm not coming to church anymore. It's not worth it. Every time I come, it's always about Christ being born and Christ dying. The boy says, Daddy, that's because all we ever go is on Christmas and Easter. Maybe that's it for you. Maybe it's just every once in a while to make yourself feel good or get God on your side. Maybe it's the desire to find a New Year's Eve service because there's something within you or some tradition that says if you go to a New Year's Eve worship service, then God will bless your next year. Well, do you believe that church attendance will draw God's compassion towards your job situation? towards your physical health. 
When you pray or read your Bible in a devotional time before a big exam or a medical appointment, what's your motivation? Is it holiness? Is it a relationship with God? Or are you trying to use God to get something? Is, is being in a relationship with God your motivation or is some kind of success your motivation? Do you think God will respond to you if you pray in a certain way or for a certain amount of time or in a specific place? Do you think God will keep your house safe if you have Bible verses all over the pillowcases or on the walls? Maybe you give extra money into the offering or you serve in some specific ministry thinking that if you do this, then God will give you that. A sick person maybe would start praying in a certain way because they want healing. A politician might take a sudden interest in God because they think it'll get them more votes. Or maybe you think your prayers will be answered if you get a pastor to pray for you. I wonder if you've ever thought this. If you can just get a pastor to pray for your new car or for your new house or for your new baby, then surely, because it's the pastor praying, surely God will bring some kind of blessing. Why do you do what you do spiritually? Why do you do what you do? Friends, we, all of us, need to examine our hearts. Why do we do what we do? Do we want to know the Lord or, or do we just want things? We may laugh about rabbit's feet. Maybe nobody has a rabbit's feet or foot in their pocket or purse today here. But do we have spiritual superstitions that we're clinging to in this life? Well, instead of reflecting and repenting, the Israelites, they never really looked at the why, did they? They never looked at the why to their defeat. Instead, they reached for the rabbit's foot, their good luck charm. They don't deal with their sin. The priests were right there. Hophni and Phinehas were right there with the ark. They could have stopped them. They appear complicit in this sin. Maybe they're leading the way, the blind leading the blind. No prayer, no pursuit of God. Israel literally put God in a box and they tried to twist his arm. A disaster produced by their disobedience. And it's going to lead to a bad news report. That's the third and final point in these verses, verses 12 through 22. We've seen a bad idea. We've seen a bad day. And then thirdly, we're going to see some bad news. The scene's going to switch from the battlefield to, to Shiloh. And we're going to get a report of this second battle. Verse 12, a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. A running reporter came with the news. This man came a long way. 35 kilometers would have been the distance and it would have been uphill in a mountainous region. All, all in one day, almost an entire marathon, his clothes torn, dirt on his head. That was a sign of defeat and a sign of grief. The man gets to Shiloh, and in verse 13, even before his arrival, Eli's already, he's already trembling. Eli's, Eli's, Eli's worried. He's trembling because of the ark. He's concerned about it. And you may have noticed as you read this, it's interesting, the text says he was watching. It's like in the, in the book of Psalms or in Habakkuk, that idea of watching is used metaphorically. We'll see down in verse 15 that 98-year-old Eli's actually blind. 
He can't see. It was a pitiful sight. You have the blind high priest sitting on a seat by the side of the road, trembling, waiting, worrying. He knows something is, is not right. Maybe something was, was wrong in letting that ark go to battle. He's there blind, but he's watching with his heart, worrying and trembling. Well, his bad day is about to get a whole lot worse. The bad news, 30,000 dead. The whole city cries out. Eli doesn't see the messenger running into town, but he hears the loud cries. He asks for the news. He probably regretted asking. Verse 17, Eli, your, your sons are dead, both of them. And there's this other piece of news the ark of the Lord has been captured. This was an unthinkable disaster. Eli's response, verse 18. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate and his neck was broken and he died for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years doesn't seem very phased at his son's death, but as soon as he hears about the ark of the Lord being captured, he falls over backwards from his seat. His neck is broken and he dies. Well, the text adds that he was old and heavy. I don't think those words are an accident here. It might be pointing out that Eli was getting fat over all those immoral offerings his son stole from worshipers. Remember a few weeks ago, we saw that these men were eating meat that they weren't supposed to eat. It's a tragic ending for a man who served as the leader of spiritual Israel for four decades. The deaths, the capture of the ark, the report of Israel's defeat, all this caused Phineas's wife to go into premature labor. She's in shock. She quickly bows down into position and she gives birth to a child. And she ends up teaching more truth in her death than her priest husband did his entire life combined. Look at verse 20. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, do not be afraid for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. Now, I'm not sure this is the way to encourage someone. She has just lost her husband. She'd lost her father-in-law. 30,000 soldiers fell, and she's dying herself. And she's told by the midwives, don't be afraid. Congrats, it's a boy. The encouragement fell on deaf ears. She's too despondent to answer. She's probably thinking to herself, who cares? What's the hope? Why does this matter? And she named her son in the little time that she had left on earth before she passes away. She names him Ichabod. That means no glory. God's presence among them seems to be gone. The woman dies. Eli dies. The two priests die. His sons, 30,000 die. Israel is soundly defeated by their enemies, the Philistines. So for Phineas' wife, all that, but topped up with, most of all, the ark being captured. For her, there's no glory here. 
Israel's glory is completely lost. Now, of course, this wasn't the defeat of Yahweh himself. We'll see God's glory even in defeat in the coming chapters. But why did they feel that way? Why did they feel that God's glory was gone? Well, the answer is way back in verse 1. The very first words, and the word of Samuel came to all Israel. God is there. God is speaking. God is speaking to Samuel. God's word is there, but God's people never looked to God. God was there, but they weren't listening. They weren't trusting. They weren't appealing to him. And notice the contrast between Samuel's birth and Ichabod's birth. One child is named with hope and gratitude because from the Lord I have requested him. And that you have the other boy here named with despair. For God's glory was gone. Or so it seemed. No hope. Israel's mourning what seems to be an exodus of God's presence. They pursue spiritual superstition instead of God. Looked like Yahweh had lost. We talked about irony over Hophni and Phinehas' death already. There's another irony here. Looked like Yahweh was despised and defeated. But all along, he wasn't losing honor, but actually protecting it and restoring it. I mean, it looked like all was lost. This was the worst day. It looked like everything was lost, but God was actually doing something. God was purging the wicked priesthood and preparing a way for Samuel to lead. I mean, the imagery there of, of Eli falling back out of his chair could be a picture of him falling off his throne as high priest. God is removing Eli and his family from the priesthood. The high priest is off his throne. A new one would come. Now, earlier in the chapter, Hophni and Phinehas were there with the ark. There was a great plan. But the irony is that as Israel plans to bring the ark for victory, the whole time, the whole time Yahweh was using the ark to carry out his own purposes in removing the evil priests purging the people. Yahweh was doing a million things behind the scenes to actually protect his glory. It wasn't that the glory was gone. He was protecting his glory. There was always a purpose, even in defeat, even in the darkness, even on the worst days. See, on the day that Yahweh looked like the loser, he was actually protecting his very glory. There would be a twist to the story. Samuel would come and take the lead. Well, all this reminds us of another day when all seemed lost, another day about a, a thousand years later. It was there on Calvary, the one who preached and performed miracles, the one who claimed to be one with the Father, the Messiah, marched to the cross. And on the day that Jesus died, all seemed lost. It looked like the high priest was being thrown off his throne. Looked like he was falling off. If there was ever a time that the name Ichabod might have been spoken, it was there. The glory of God was gone. Or so it seemed. See, if ever the glory of God dwelt and tabernacled with us, it was in Jesus Christ, the God-man who walked on this very earth. 
It's God who came to us, Emmanuel. And yet the God-man Jesus was despised. He was put to death. And darkness rejoiced as though heaven had lost. But all along, all behind the scenes, God was working to protect his honor and to restore his honor. On the third day, indeed, death was arrested and Christ rose from the dead. See, with the death of Eli, a whole era was being passed by, passing it away. And with the death of Jesus, a whole era was beginning. God was not abandoning his people. God was preparing a way for them to be reconciled to himself. Redeemer Church, let's not look to the ark of God more than we look to the God of the ark. Let's put away our religious and spiritual superstitions, and let's trust God. He is faithful. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. Oh, would we be a people who would love you for who you are and not for what we can get from you? Oh, stir in our hearts to pursue Christ with all fervor and energy. Would being with you be our soul's delight? Would we trust you in all things, including even now in our finances and our giving? Father, be with us now as we give to you and your work here in Dubai. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.